Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Jessica Kirzain and Saul Zaret to talk about In Geveb, an online journal of Yiddish studies. Jessica Kirzain is the lecturer in Yiddish at the University of Chicago, and she serves as the editor-in-chief of In Geveb. And Saul Zaret is an assistant professor of Yiddish literature in Harvard's Department of Comparative Literature. He was also one of the founding editors of InGveb. InGveb is a really exciting journal that publishes important peer-reviewed research in Yiddish studies, translations, and also on topics relating to pedagogy. I'm so glad to have Jessica and Saul on the podcast today to talk about what they've been doing with their project, what it represents as part of the field of Yiddish studies, and how we can think about open access and what that means for the question of making Jewish studies and Yiddish studies accessible to a wide audience. If you want to check out InGveb, you can find it online at ingveb.org. That's I-N-G-E-V-E-B.org. They publish great articles in English really all the time. It's not a quarterly journal in the traditional sense. And they're also often putting up translations of Yiddish literature and important pieces about how we teach Yiddish, Yiddish language, Yiddish writers, and so on and so forth. And you really should check it out if you haven't seen it before. You can find links to the journal and also to some of the articles and pieces we'll talk about today in the show notes or at jewishhistory.fm slash Yiddish journal. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Saul. Welcome to Jewish History Matters. Thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, I think that what you guys have been doing is really cool. I'm a big fan of Ingeveb, you know, and and so I was really happy that we could get you guys to come on the podcast to talk about it. You know, I know that, Saul, you're still on the board, right? Yes. Yeah, but you're no longer like technically running. This is all you, Jessica, right? (laughs) I am the the editor-in-chief, but I work with the team. Ingeveb is a very collaborative organization. When I think about what we have on the podcast, it's a lot of people talking about books, right? About monographs. Uh, and I've tried to have some people also to talk about projects that are really doing interesting and innovative things. Uh, and here, you know, we have a journal. And in the past, I think I've also had some folks on to talk about a journal issue, right? Like a, like a special issue. But here I'm, I'm interested in, in thinking about um, Ingeveb kind of as a whole, at least the way that I see it. And maybe you see it differently. But, you know, it's not just a collection of articles, but it really represents a, a vision of creating something. So I think maybe one place for us to get started would be if you want to talk a little bit about the origin of the project and what you've wanted to accomplish with it and where you see it going. I guess I'll start since I was there at the beginning. I think I'm still listed on the website as a co-founding editor. So a while back in 2008, one of the last uh, Yiddish literary journals stopped publication. That's Juliot, which came out of the University of Haifa. And uh, Dovid Ruskies, professor at JTS, always wanted to start a journal just for Yiddish studies. Though so, you know, is the famously one of the founders of Proof Texts, a journal of Jewish literary history, I think is how it calls itself. He always wanted something that would just be about Yiddish. And he pitched this idea to the Naomi Foundation, a foundation uh, in that honors the memory of Naomi Kadar, former Yiddish teacher that funds a lot of Yiddish projects. And they were very keen on the idea, but they wanted to find uh, young people to take it on because the idea was that it would be not only just a journal, but an online journal. 
This is was Ruski's idea from the beginning. And being himself not exactly the most skilled in digital tools, he wanted to bring on younger people to, to look at the project. It took him a while to find the right people. And then eventually came to both Eitan Kensky and to me. Uh, Eitan Kensky was at the time a, a lecturer in Yiddish and was just finishing his dissertation at Harvard. And I was still a graduate student at the Jewish Theological Seminary. We decided to take on the project, but we didn't want to do exactly the things that Ruskies had wanted to do. He wanted uh, more or less to have a simple, straightforward peer review journal and on the side have what he called a repository for Yiddish texts, a place to gather all the things that people had scanned uh, over the years. Uh, we thought this was a, an excellent idea, but not enough for the kind of things that can happen on the internet and with various digital opportunities that were out there. So Eitan and I came back to, to David and to the NAMI Foundation with a much expanded idea of a journal that would have a peer review section, but also one that would have a large uh, section devoted to translations, to a whole pedagogy section that would allow teachers of Yiddish and students of Yiddish to exchange uh, materials and to think about the teaching of Yiddish in a more collective way. And then finally, uh, because we were both children of the blog era of the 90s and early 2000s, wanted to have a place where people could write about Yiddish, not just in an academic way, but in a more popular way. Um, this took a little bit of time to formulate, and we had to convince uh, the NAMI Foundation that we were interested in it. What we felt from the beginning, that it couldn't just be a project of the two of us, that one of the major values that the project could embody would be a new way of collaborating in Yiddish studies, or even in Jewish studies, or in the academy at large, to bring in as many of our friends and colleagues and other people doing exciting things in Yiddish into the project from the very beginning. Um, so we brought in Sarah Zara, who was a PhD student at NYU, and Mintel Cohen, who was a PhD student at Berkeley at the time. We started planning and building an editorial board of other young people, uh, securing a nonprofit status, all those things, and trying to think about the different sections in more compelling ways until finally uh, we were ready to apply for funding from the Naomi Foundation, get very generous seed funding from them, and then... Uh, after two years of prepping in August of 2015, we launched right when I was moving from um, from New York to, to St. Louis. So that was a little bit insane. Uh, but we launched then with all of these sections happening at once. This is sort of this large and growing and very new kind of project uh, that was ready to be tested out in the world. Yeah. And from the beginning, I was also involved, although my involvement changed and grew substantially over time. But I will say that at the beginning, I was just a member of the editorial board and part of this early process of thinking through and collaborating. And one of the things that was very exciting about the journal was that it was trying to address certain holes that all of us were feeling in our experience as Yiddishists and Yiddishist academics. So one of them was, was this feeling that we found stuff and had no place for it, a place to publish our translations. I had translated an entire, very long story by Obatoshu about a lynching for a paper as a graduate student and felt that there was no good place for it. And it was just sitting on my laptop. And also this sense of building a community among scholars through online publishing, which I think happened for me sort of right away by sitting in the in the room at the AJS with Yiddishists that I didn't know and had never met before, who I now uh, work very closely with, including Mandy, who I hadn't met before that. 
Just to be clear, Mandy is Mindel from Berkeley. Sorry, yes, Mandy <laughs> she, is Mindel. She has several names, yeah. So I think it was in some ways uh, a kind of top-down endeavor of conscientious planning and looking for funding and thinking about what these different sections would be. And in some ways, it was kind of, a, you know, from the, the group of people who were in the room and each of us expressing what we needed a journal to be or what, what kind of public sphere we wanted to create for Yiddish. Right. I've heard you say a couple of things, right, about creating community, right, and creating a, a public sphere for Yiddish. How do you see that and think about that in terms of the role of a journal? I think that Ingeweb has become over time a really important space for people to think through what it is to study Yiddish today. That has gone in, in many directions, but one has been the, the personal essay component of the blog with various people coming in and, and, and discussing their experiences, the experience of being a non-Jewish instructor of Yiddish, for instance, or the experience of attending Yiddishbach and thinking about its pedagogy and its communal function and having a space where people openly reflect about their experiences as teachers and learners and academics rather than leaving the reflection kind of in the background and foregrounding only the, uh, the output, the syllabi or the academic publications. There's also kind of a public accounting for it, which I think is important. Yeah, I think there is a danger in creating these kinds of institutions of uh, perpetuating a sense of there being gatekeepers, right? So we could have decided that we are Yiddish studies now, and this is what Yiddish studies is which has an important function for some fields, I think, when you don't know exactly uh, what's going on or if there's a kind of ego battle between various scholars. And that was the kind of culture that we wanted to avoid explicitly. We wanted Yiddish studies to be an open and fluid kind of space. So not only about Yiddish literature or about a kind of philological mastery, but about opening Yiddish in as many ways as possible, both to our own personal reflections, but to a kind of scholarly work that maybe is Yiddish adjacent, right? Or is in multiple fields at once in which Yiddish plays one role. That also for us is a kind of Yiddish studies and someone we really want to bring into the project. The idea was that we want someone coming to our website by accident, say, through some sort of academic or non-academic channel to find Yiddish suddenly to be relevant to their work, whether they're a Slavist, whether they're a linguist, whether uh, there's someone working on American history, European history, or I, I don't know, African history, right? They're working on South African history. Suddenly Yiddish might be important. Any work that we do that kind of can fit and open up these various different avenues for conversation, not just among some kind of circumscribed group, but really opening, opening it up to a larger conversation. I will say we spend a lot of time thinking about different kinds of constituencies that we might want to address or reach in terms of audiences or in terms of potential participants. So how do we get graduate students involved? What kinds of writing? Is it easier or more applicable to people who uh, maybe don't have research budgets, but can otherwise produce different kinds of scholarship? People who are teaching, do we want to be addressing, for instance, people who teach in a, in a day school and want to give them resources from the expertise that we have? who maybe could potentially show up at this website and then think about how they could be teaching this material. How can we make our texts teachable to people who aren't experts? So we have this series of teaching guides. And uh, one of the goals of the teaching guides is to give instructors who are not experts in Yiddish the tools to teach a text that was originally written in Yiddish. 
Also, we have an interest in publishing work by scholars who don't originally write in, in English or who are giving access to kind of the, the international, uh, transnational sphere of Yiddish studies through our English language platform. So there's a, a lot of different kinds of constituencies that we're trying to reach all at once. I'll just add one more to that list from the peer review side, getting people to review books that are not Yiddishists, right? So to get someone who's not in the field at all and who would actually, often when we email these people to try to get them to review books that are about Yiddish studies and they're like, but I don't, I don't do I don't do Yiddish studies. We'd say no. That's exactly why we want you to review this book for us, right? Or we want you to do the peer review so that we can get a sense of how these fields intersect and include these new voices in a field that is sometimes has felt closed off. And we tried to do that a little bit in the blog as well. We had an idea for a Lloyd Delayner's section where people who weren't necessarily Yiddishists who had read something on our site could write sort of a personal essay about their experience. Uh, means according to the readers. So, so they could write a personal essay about their experience reading a piece. So we had someone respond to a short story that had an, an abortion scene in it from the perspective of uh, an abortion rights activist. And so that is something that we're, we're open to as well, though it's not a series that has uh, continued, but that has the potential to continue. Right. No, it's, it's hard because when people see Yiddish, they see, oh, so that's for someone else they think of it as part of a particular kind of conversation that they're not invited into. So I think at every turn, we're kind of battling between both there being an institutional idea for Yiddish and one that is kind of set in stone and this desire to push against that idea. And we can't force people to write. We can commission as much as we can and look for people and invite them. But we're always struggling with how to manage those different audiences, as Jessica described them, and trying to get them to talk to one another. And in some ways, we have already like really radically different audiences within Yiddish studies, right? We just did this special issue in religious thought in Yiddish, which involves uh, scholarship about Chabad and about Hasidism. And then we're publishing this teaching guide to erotic Yiddish poetry. And the subject matter and the tone and so forth is radically different. And it's, it's kind of exciting to have a space where uh, both of those things are possible and not really like questionable or... I don't know. So far, I haven't felt like people are surprised by seeing both of those items on IndieWeb. Yeah. So I want to pick up on some of the things that you guys were just saying, because when you talk about taking a field of study and talking about why it's relevant to a wide range of people, it's something that you know I'm trying to do with the podcast too. So I think one way to to think about this question of reaching, you know, many audiences and many constituencies is this question of you know, what is Yiddish studies? Uh, you know, what does that mean for you in terms of this negotiation between, on the one hand, the actual teaching of the Yiddish language and the study of Yiddish culture? That's one thing. And then also, how do you make that relevant to a wide range of people? You know, so for instance, I saw you mentioned, you know, someone who's a Slavicist, right? You know, someone who studies Eastern Europe. Well, in a certain way, Yiddish is kind of naturally of interest to them because you know, that's where Yiddish culture developed, right? Um, but if you talk about someone who studies South Africa or someone who studies or is interested in you know, any number of range of things that does not directly intersect with the Yiddish homeland, so to speak, how and in what ways do you see Yiddish studies mattering to people in a very broad way? Well, I think it intersects in a lot of different ways. And in every aspect of Yiddish studies that we touch, there are potential ways in which it can connect. So a piece about Yiddish language teaching, for instance, a piece about how to teach 
songs in a Yiddish classroom is not just, I think, for Yiddish language teachers. It could be for people who are interested in language pedagogy more broadly or uh, less commonly taught languages. It can be entering those conversations as well. One example of something that we've done to try to reach out and draw connections between what we're publishing and potential other fields. I think an example is the teaching guides that I mentioned before, which often use a text that we have published on our site, a translation that we've published on our site, but then give um, suggestions for discussion questions and writing prompts. And sometimes those are in a, of a comparative nature and help to draw out those connections. So we had Eli Rosenblatt's translation of uh, Isaac Mayer Deke's introduction to his adaptation of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And then we also published a teaching guide with it that helped to um, draw connections between this text and what was going on contemporaneously in Eastern Europe that would have attracted him to this text. So the end of serfdom, and then maybe to people who are teaching Uncle Tom's Cabin as part of the emerging global literature landscape. The idea is to try to make this accessible to a variety of fields. The question about whether we reach those readers is, is an open question, but that's the goal. I think it's okay to say that Yiddishland isn't everywhere. I mean, we try to push the boundaries as much as we can. And, uh, you know, Yiddishland, this kind of idea of there being a Yiddish land or some kind of Yiddish territory that is diasporic in nature, right? It can go anywhere, it can be anywhere, is true to some certain extent, but we're not going to be relevant to everybody. And I think that's okay. At the same time, we want to make sure that in anything that we publish, at least is how I, I think about it, I think, Jessica, you may share this, that there's an opportunity for some larger conversation. We have, you know, a great set of pieces that we put out for Purim that have a ton of inside jokes, but we hope at the same time give a sense of the kind of play that you can do with Yiddish. This last Purim, we published this amazing uh, song, translation of Hamilton into Yiddish that Jessica uh, sang for us. I hope I'm not embarrassing her too much by putting this <laughs> on a podcast. Uh, just look it up on the website. It's it's hilarious. You won't necessarily get all the translation jokes that are inside her translation of Hamilton, but you get the idea of a kind of play that is part of a kind of popular culture event, but also taps into a long history of Yiddish adaptation and translation that has a kind of, I think, at least intellectual uh, component to it that would be of interest to both people in a field interested in translation as such, but in those interested in the kind of entertainment factor that it, that it can bring. Yeah. You know, I think as I am hearing you talk about the idea of like inside jokes and also some of these questions about uh, languages that are not taught as widely, you know, that again also brings up some of these fundamental questions about Yiddish language and Yiddish studies and why they matter in a broad way. Because I can, you know, think about this question about the way in which sometimes Yiddish you know, is kind of the purview of some people who have a heritage connection to it, right? You know, like for instance, like if we talk about Yivo, right, which is a place that I love, you know, I, I do tons of research, you know, there and at the Center for Jewish History. But if you look at it, there are so many people who are part of that who are insiders within the world of Yiddish, right? And so the question is how to make it accessible, whether we're talking about, you know, the history of the Jews of Eastern Europe, right, or the language and the culture, uh, and how to make that accessible to a wide uh, audience of, of people, many of whom may or may not understand the insider baseball, right? Or, or the inside jokes of some of these things. And then the other half of it as well, you know, I think one of the ways in which it does matter that it is important that languages that are not spoken as widely uh, are taught and understood. I think that we, we think about, you know, the globalization 
and that's been going on you know for centuries but has really intensified you know obviously uh, over the past you know century and decades uh one of the things that we see is a growing monoculture linguistically one of the things that's interesting to me about yiddish uh is the way in which it represents you know a language that among many other languages needs to be taught needs to be understood and studied you know and not just sort of you know the major global cultures but just a short corrective yiddish is not in a terrible state i wasn't trying to say that it was yeah, i mean hundred, comparison. hundreds and thousands of speakers in the hasidic community for the most part um i also want to push back against the idea of yiddish being a unique case and as much as all languages have within them i would say or all cultures have their various insider and outsider uh mechanisms so to say that yiddish has more or less of those or yiddish is in a unique position i think is is hard to prove or to say with any definitive way at the same time, it is a challenge, as we've talked about, of trying to find ways to make make a culture that has its particularities become somewhat translatable while preserving the idea of, of particularity itself. Right? So we're not interested in the journal of turning Yiddish into some universalizable thing, uh, some sort of every language, or as Isaac Bashevis Singer would say, a, a figurative thing, but at the same time, making those particularities somewhat accessible. So take the challenge of our translation section, for instance. We never publish text on our website without also providing a translation, meaning we want the text to always be accessible to anyone who comes to the text, which is a challenge because not all these texts are translatable or it's hard to find ways that make them accessible, whether we're using excessive footnotes that make the reading of it very difficult, or if we're leaving those footnotes out, what happens in the gap between the various texts. And it's something we struggle with, I think, with every text that we publish in the translation section and elsewhere in the website. So I think there is that tension between trying to decide or perform the uniqueness of the language and its culture at the same time as trying to provide avenues into the language or, or feel like it's okay in Jeffrey Chandler's terms, to have a post-vernacular relationship with the language, to have a kind of partial or fragmented relationship with it, or to only find it important for this small part of your research, while also welcoming those people who want to fully immerse themselves with Yiddish into the website, right? How to answer both of those needs. And to think about our readers as being both insiders and people who have maybe tangential relationships. We talked a lot about how we want to reach and appeal to a broad audience. But we also want this site to be a place where people who have a kind of deep and rich experience and understanding of Yiddish and engagement with Yiddish to find a voice there and a community there. And it can be hard to balance between those two things. One of the early conversations, and Saul, maybe you can talk about this more than I could, on the site was, can we, should we be publishing in Yiddish? And what are the politics of choosing English? What are the consequences of choosing English for Ingeveb? And I think that that kind of speaks to this question of, of the insiders and the outsiders and also the, the language revitalization project uh, and what Ingeveb's role is or should be in that project. The choice of English is a hard one. It had become clear that English was the dominant language of Yiddish studies scholarship. At the same time, there was a large number of people that wanted more venues to be able to publish in Yiddish, not just in the forverts or in the, you know, not very often publishing uh, the Yerushalmi Almanach, which is a kind of intellectual journal that sometimes still publishes. But there was a demand, like, if you have this journal, have this funding for this journal, you're becoming a, a nonprofit, 
why not have a venue for publishing actual either essays in Yiddish or even you know Yiddish literature, poetry, um, and fiction. And we've struggled with that. I think we've kept to this idea of still providing a kind of accessibility of a Yiddish beyond Yiddish at the same time as having this heavy Yiddish content. So if we're going to publish a new Yiddish poem, we said we have to be publishing it with a translation, uh, which is a kind of compromise that doesn't always meet the demands of those who want to produce Yiddish in Yiddish, Yiddish culture in Yiddish. So uh, yeah, it's a constant negotiation that we've struggled with. You know, so one thing that, that I wanted to talk to you guys about was the online open access format. I think even like the journal's title, right, Ingeweb, literally means like, you know, in web or, you know, you could translate that very liberally as online. So I think especially as you talk about making Yiddish studies accessible, right, whether that's through you know, translations or, or anything else, what's the significance of having an online journal, right, also an open access one? Uh, you know, I know it is peer-reviewed, or, or there are portions are. Yeah, the peer-reviewed section, right. and the translations are peer-reviewed. Right. You know, so how do you understand the online component, right? Is it just the medium, the way that you're able to put it out there, or does it also relate in some way to your vision for the openness of Yiddish and also this question of, you know, the ways in which you try to perhaps reach beyond the scholarly community? Uh, I think all of the above, right? In some ways, it is the medium, Uh but it's also a way of building connections across these sections, right, between the blog and the pedagogy and pieces that we've published in the past that can then come back and be linked as related content. And so there's a way that things that are on the internet don't become old in quite the same way. So the, the continued relevance and continued circulation of ideas, also the way that it helps to constitute the community and gives access to people who aren't uh, necessarily part of the academia to academic writing, to think about it and incorporate it into their own Yiddishist work, whatever it is. I don't know if that answers your question entirely, but I think it's an important component. Uh, it's kind of fundamental to who we are as an organization, that we are open access and online. Part of Ingeweb was, at least for me, a critique of the academic publishing world. So most journals are affiliated with a university press of some kind. And the way those university presses work as kind of nonprofits themselves is that they have to sell their journals. They don't sell their journals to individual people. They sell them to libraries, libraries of universities for the most part. So there's this weird circular logic in which a university press is funded by the university, then sells its own content back to the university library. And increasingly, those journals, whether they're online or, or in book form, are becoming very expensive. and Libraries and universities are starting to not be able to afford those libraries. And certainly scholars outside of a university setting are not going to have the money to gain access to these large repositories like JSTOR or any other. So the sense of this system is kind of falling apart, and people know that it's falling apart. And open access is one of the answers to this kind of crisis in academic publishing. And when we started, we wanted to be independent from that system. So Ingeweb is its own nonprofit. It's not attached to any other institution. It does its own fundraising for better or for worse. And it allows us to do things that a university press wouldn't necessarily want to do and spend money in ways that a university press wouldn't want to do, for instance, by funding our managing editors, trying to pay as much as we can uh, those people who publish with us in various sections. So that is something behind the sort of financial and political in some way, motivations behind it being open access. But beyond that, it, it's, you know, the things that Jessica said, 
We don't have the overhead of print. We get to do lots of things with multimedia, mixed media without having to apologize for it. We never have to give word limits or like length requirements. Though sometimes it's better when we have them, right. when when writers need those limits. So we, we do apply them when, the, when they're needed. Um, a connecting between different kinds of materials. And the most important, at least for me, they're never being a paywall to our content. Anyone can get it from anywhere without there being a kind of institutional obstacle. Right. I mean, this question of the paywall is important. So much of what happens at the university is behind a paywall, whether we're talking about sort of students paying tuition, right, or you know, the exorbitant prices for parking to come to events or whatever. One of the, the questions is, you know, what does taking Yiddish studies out from behind that paywall and putting it online, what does that do for Yiddish studies? Well, that in some way depends on our reputation as a journal. The more we're able to create conversations, both between scholars that are working on Yiddish most explicitly internationally and through different institutions, then, you know, taking that conversation and being able to apply it to all different kinds of academic and non-academic settings, that's really going to determine uh, our success, at least for me, and the way I think about the horizons of it. And this kind of open access is part of that strategy. It's not the only thing, right? Uh, these conversations have to take place in multiple different ways, not just through forwarding someone an email or getting us some link on social media. We need to make those things happen. But at the same time, the openness of open access is really part of how the whole project would have to work. One of the challenges is that, say, there's a ton of scholarship happening in Yiddish studies in Europe, in Poland, in, uh, in Russia, in Germany, and all these places in Europe. But the way their system works for many of the academics, they are incentivized to publish in particular kinds of journals. Mm -hmm. There's like, for some places, there's even like point systems in which you write something or publish a book of some kind, you get a certain number of points and it's tied to your promotion and to your career path. Since we're outside of all those academic institutions, we don't count in that way. So it's, sometimes it's hard to get European scholars to publish with us, even though that's the stuff we need to see because the, the dialogue between Europe and America and the U.S. have been kind of truncated at times, there's, there's a lack of incentive due to these kind of institutional hierarchies for them to publish with us. So we have to really go out of our way to find ways to get, get those people involved. And, and part of that is also the, the various sections that we have offer different kinds of opportunities for people to be involved, right? So um, a person who doesn't feel they can publish in our peer review section because of some of the questions that Saul mentioned, or also because, say, they don't have a research budget and don't have time for research in their particular job, can publish something else, right? They could publish in our pedagogy section, and then some of their thoughts and their ideas are part of this broader conversation, even if it's not in the peer-reviewed section. And so I think that's kind of fundamental to the project of putting all of these things together in one space is saying that uh, pedagogical writing is also academic writing and blog writing can also be a kind of academic writing. And translation is also academic work that should be valued as part of the broader project of uh, Yiddish studies. You know, we've talked a little bit about the politics of open access, right? Um, but I kind of want to go back to something that I asked about before. When, when you think about the relationship, you know, not just of open access to the academy, right, but of open access to Yiddish studies in particular, you know, is there something that you see sort of in your vision for the development of Yiddish studies and this open access ethos? Well, 
I think it's something that's actually a broader problem for Jewish studies in general, right? So how do you define a field like Jewish studies, which is quote unquote interdisciplinary, uh, can happen any, anywhere as long as you say the word Jew, right? Jewish studies has happened. So a similar thing for Yiddish studies. How do you create a central space for it, some kind of institutional home for a language and culture that often eludes our grasp? Yiddish famously, right, as a quote-unquote diasporic language, doesn't have clear institutional uh, connections. Right? We have a place like Yivo, but Yivo is tied to Eastern Europe in a very fundamental way, or Yivo is tied to Vilna in a very fundamental way. So even though it purports to speak about all of Yiddish and all of Yiddish culture, its research goals tend to be circumscribed in certain ways, and they're tied to a particular institutional structure and history. How can we make a home for Yiddish studies that doesn't have those kinds of strictures to it? That, I think, is one of the motivating questions that kind of gets to something that you've just said, right? What is it about Yiddish studies that lends itself to open access? I personally think this is applicable to other fields in a very fundamental way. But I think this kind of disjunction that Yiddish studies has, where you don't know exactly what it is, lends itself to this kind of openness partnering with other institutions is a big part of what we do, right? Um, having connections and drawing connections between various institutions and the work that they're doing at various institutions. So, you know, our project is in no way to say, YIVO is doing it wrong, so now we are going to do it better, or the Yiddish Book Center is doing it wrong, so now we're going to do it better. But to say, uh, how can we bring the variety of projects that are going on in the Yiddish world together in one kind of central and more fluid context? Right. Kind of like an umbrella, uh, though we're not like controlling any of those places, but, you know, where content that's digitized in the Yiddish Book Center can find its way onto our website and use, you know, other kind of archival resources that are at YIVO and somehow find their way into an article that ends up on our website. Right. That, I think, is one of those ways that that we can write, as you called it, a fluid container for the vast number of resources that all these great organizations do. And so much of what we do relies on the work that other organizations are doing, even even in the most minute detail, right? Everything that we publish has at least one cover image, if not other images. And most often I find those images um, through digitized content that's been put online by a variety of organizations, New York Public Library or Evo or any number of other organizations. I think that part of the success of Ingeweb has been the moment that it arrived, uh, was ripe for it and all kinds of digitization. I often find things through um, historical Jewish press as well. There's the volume of material that is available online creates the opportunity for people to use it and, and use it creatively. You talked about sort of an aim of connecting the Yiddish world across institutions and also geographically. One question is there, then what are some of these challenges that the field of Yiddish studies faces institutionally politically, you know, and otherwise, how you've been able to have these opportunities, but also where you see yourself fitting into this transformation and development of Yiddish studies. I will say that a lot of people involved in Yiddish studies, and I don't think this is uh, unique to Yiddish studies, feel an enormous stake in it, feel an enormous sense of ownership over it. And we want to honor that and also suggest that there are multiple points of entry and multiple owners and stakeholders. And I think there is a possibility of discontentment over what we publish because it doesn't fit into one or another institution or individual's perceptions of what Yiddish studies is or should be. 
That was very diplomatic of you to say. <laughs> that was very carefully and wonderfully worded. The other thing I would also add is that working across institutions takes so much time. That's something that we, I don't think, anticipated. You know, we had this project called the Milgram Project, which we had from the very beginning. We're going to have new content for Milgram. But I think pretty soon we'll have some. But Milgram is a is the name of an interwar journal, very pretty, with lots of amazing color, glossy pages that was published in Berlin by a number of Yiddishists. It was a Yiddish art journal. It's the most prominent of a number of interwar avant-garde modernist journals that were an amazing collection, uh, many of them short-lived. And as scholars, we're always like, oh, why isn't this digitized? It's like there's only three or four issues would take like an hour to digitize. And there's all this great content that should be translated, written about. And we were like, let's just go to the historical press. They'll digitize it quickly and we can start this project immediately. We'll invite all these other people to join in. And they were enthusiastic. We were enthusiastic. We had people lining up to do the work. And still, it you know, it took us you know, four years to get some of that stuff off the ground, which is for, I think, veterans of the academic world is just like totally understandable. But for us as young academics, and we can talk more about the youngness of Inkeweb and how we want to keep it, people doing it young. That was one of the hardest things to come to realize that working across institutions just requires time, even without the ego problems and the political problems, which sometimes come up as well. But it's just sort of getting one thing to move across a time. is just hard. The issue of time in general is something that I think probably is hard for any publication, but part of it maybe has to do with our youngness and our youthful youngness <laughs> that um, that we're you know used to the instant publication of whatever Facebook or emails where you write something and it exists immediately. And for me, as a as the editor in chief, it has taken and is still taking a lot of time to develop the kind of patience to let something go through all of the stages of multiple rounds of edits and uh, waiting for people to return contracts and do we have a photo to go with their bio and all these different steps to make something look uh, professional and be the best that it can be. And different sections require different lengths of time. So it doesn't take as long to publish a piece for the blog as it takes to go through peer review for something. And it can be hard to manage a publication schedule across the variety of pieces that we publish where, oh, well, you know, we're, we're publishing a review of this book. Should we also publish uh, teaching materials for this book? Well, that would be great, but how do we get them to come out in sync with one another? It can be a real challenge. And then the last thing is just money. Uh, like any nonprofit, especially one that's not dependent on a university press or anything like that. So we have got very generous seed funding from the Namely Foundation, but... Uh, as Eitan Kensky says, who's the president of our board, we're always in search of that eccentric millionaire that will provide us with, with, with the funding we need. It, you know, it's just always a challenge to find those individuals and foundations that are willing to support the journal. We have very generous readers who give to the journal and give back, and we're, we're deeply appreciative of them. But we're a nonprofit, and we're, you know, living from year to year in some ways. On top of that dependent on volunteer labor when we really would love to pay them. So it's a kind of attention there that has a, a, an articulation in an institutional sense, right? All of these organizations that are working on Yiddish culture are all trying to raise money from YIVO to the Yiddish Book Center to all the different kinds of places in the U.S. that are that are trying to support this stuff that happens in and for Yiddish. So I wouldn't say it's a competition. I think we all do very many different things, but it's not the first thing that people want to give money for.
And I should say, and why do we need the money is because in part, because we're very committed to trying to pay for the labor of writing and the labor of editing as best we can. And so our budget could be much smaller if that was not our commitment. On top of that, we have a pedagogical goal, right? That those that are employed are young academics. Um, So they are graduate students, contingent faculty, uh, non-academics that are working on Yiddish that we, we want to support them you know, financially as, as part of the intensity of the academic job market, the crisis of the academic job market, if you want to call it that, that, that we want to be a resource in that world. Right. Uh, I mean, that's a, a very noble thing. People should be getting paid for the writing that they do. Uh, it's kind of a shame, right? You write a, an article for a major journal and you don't see a dime, but that's a whole separate set of issues. Uh, I'm glad that you brought up this question of fundraising, actually. In as much as, you know, we've talked a fair bit about the online component of what it is that you're doing. One thing that, that I've seen recently was that you did a handful of, of fundraisers, you know, for the journal, which I thought was just really cool. You know, I saw all the posts on like uh, Facebook and, you know, so on and so forth. They were salons, not, not just fundraisers. Right, right. Well, House parties. Well, this is exactly the thing, right? Which is that you're kind of taking the journal on the road, so to speak. Uh, you know, it's not just an online publication, but that there's this kind of a, of a connection with your readers, uh, you know, and with colleagues. And so I was wondering if you maybe wanted to say something about this experience of using the journal in a way as a platform for developing these salons, so to speak. And of course, they're also fundraisers. Well, Incubab has had an annual fundraiser in previous years in New York, um, a party. And we wanted to try to do something a little bit different for a number of reasons. One is that many of our readers are not in New York. And we wanted to reach them where they were and build community with them and also raise funds from them. But also because having a party in New York City in a location that's not somebody's home has an enormous overhead. And so this was a way to solve a lot of problems at once, right? To actually have parties where our readers are, to maybe grow our readership um, and help connect them to one another and have like real life conversations between actual people instead of just on screens um, and also promote our journal among them. Uh, so it has been really fun to plan and see these things come into fruition. So far, we've only had two of them, but I hope uh, more in the future. Yeah, there definitely will be more. Yeah, I had one at my house. I don't always think that celebrity is a good thing, but some of this is about showing that there are people, that there are icons behind the journal. There's living and breathing people that make things happen. So at, at our party, we had Anthony Russell, who's a singer of Yiddish song, who we've featured his work on the website, come and sing, to, to know that there's this really dynamic cultural thing happening, that it's not just something on the page or, or on the screen, but that there's this living and breathing person making this stuff was so powerful. So have him at, at our house sing a few songs, and then also have a reading by, by Richard Fine uh, of his translations of Sutzkever. Uh, accompanied by Shalom Beinfeld reading the Yiddish original. So to, you know, make this, Ram Sutzkever, a Yiddish poet, started writing in the 1930s, but, you know, one of the most important Yiddish post-war Yiddish writers uh, living in the second half of the 20th century in Israel, thought of as one of the most important writers, but, you know, not necessarily very widely known. And here is this person, you know, who's just published these amazing new translations, some of them on our website, and he's this dynamic poet translator, a really charming guy, sitting down in my living room and reading in the most intimate way to a group of 40 strangers uh, 
and now friends, I guess, friends in the Yiddish cultural sphere uh, of this very beautiful and important thing. The same thing was the case for the Seattle party. The Seattle party was co-hosted by Leora Halpern and Sasha Sandorovich and Faith Jones and David Schlitt and Sarah Zero. It was a large group of people who came together and they cooked for it. And they also had um, musicians, Sasha Loria and Craig Udelman performed and they had a raffle of... We had a raffle too. They had a raffle of... um, CDs and books and so forth that were Yiddish related. And so it was this kind of lovely bringing together of people in a actual real life people who care about Yiddish with Ingebeb at the center of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, it's really cool. One of the other things that it really demonstrates, and it's interesting, I wasn't aware of the sort of the prior events in New York, right? But it's interesting, right? And you think about the geography of, of Yiddish culture. What are you saying? That Belmont, Massachusetts is not a center of Yiddish culture? No, that's exactly the, what, not what I'm saying, right? That New York is not the only center of Yiddish culture. Yeah, that's also something we've tried to push on the journal. We've, we've had pieces about Yiddish in Utah. We have a, a special issue in the works about Yiddish in South America. But we wanted to reflect that also in our readership, which, which happens, you know, we have a piece about someone learning Yiddish in Oklahoma. Where was he studying? He was in Omaha. Omaha. Um, so I spoke earlier about the idea of Yiddishland being everywhere and nowhere. So I think the salons are part of that. The, the salon can happen anywhere a reader wants a salon. So we've had a number of very generous readers in Seattle who wanted to throw a party uh, at my house in Belmont, Mass. But the further ones will not necessarily be New York, though I imagine we'll have one in New York. But to have them wherever the, the reading and consuming of Yiddish and Yiddish studies wherever it happens, we'll, we'll be there. And if you're listening to this podcast and you want to host a, um, an Indiveb salon. <laughs> oh, that was great ad voice. <laughs> you can write to us and we will be very happy. It's not very hard to do. You uh, have a party and we will uh, help you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, parties are always a good idea. <laughs> We've toyed in the past with doing uh, Indiveb reading clubs. Right. Right. I mean, I think it's interesting. It raises some really interesting questions about, you know, how we do scholarship. You know, there is a very long history of salons and reading groups and, and so on and so forth. In a lot of ways, I think that when we look at academia today and the world of publishing, you know, we have conferences, but they're, you know, very business-like affairs. Obviously, like AJS and a lot of other conferences are a lot of fun, but I think that it's really still an open question that we should continue to be creative about and think about how we do scholarship and how we talk about research and we talk about our fields of study in all sorts of different kinds of settings, you know, and not just behind a podium. And this question of reading groups um, also published a pedagogy poll about Yiddish clubs and reading groups and how they are structured and what are they reading and so forth. And that was really important for me to think about Yiddish learning as something that didn't just happen in the classroom and to think about specifically putting it on the pedagogy section as people are actively trying to learn in ways that are not in the classroom. And how can we talk about that and support that and help those people connect and think about how they could develop what they're doing? So that's not so much related to the fundraiser, but I do think that they are related concepts about thinking about the different kinds of communities that work in, around, uh, and build community in and around Yiddish. So I was hoping that we could talk about some of the really interesting things that you guys have been doing. You know, so one of the things that I found really cool was the pedagogy blog, you know, the pedagogy section. You already mentioned, um, Jessica, I think before, this idea that we should treat writing about teaching 
as something that's valuable and important, you know, for scholars to be doing. Uh, so when you think about Incoveb and having materials relating to pedagogy, and I would also include to some extent some of the translations, right, which make some of these sources available to be taught, you know, in the university classroom and, you know, anywhere else, whether that's at a synagogue or, you know, among a group of friends or whatever. Why do you think in a way that teaching and pedagogy is an important component to have within a journal framework when most academic journals are really you know, solely focused on publishing new research? So I am in no way impartial about the pedagogy section. <laughs> I should just put it out there that prior to my being the editor-in-chief, I was for two years the uh, head of the pedagogy section, and it was kind of my, uh, my baby in addition to my actual babies. Um, and so I, I think it's central to the work of Ingebab because it's mine. Ha ha. But also I think for me, it was really important for a number of reasons. And one was as a new instructor in the university setting, when I started to actually teach, I realized that there were a lot of syllabi out there in the world, uh, that there were academic articles out there in the world. I had actually attended a couple of different language training seminars, but it was so hard to find just resources about what people were actually doing in the classroom. What do you do when you come in the first day of class? What do you do to teach this or that particular question? And it was easy to find people's reflections about it, but not their discussion questions and not their essay prompts. I felt everyone had to just reinvent the wheel. If multiple people are teaching the same text, why shouldn't they be sharing the different kinds of resources, the worksheets that they come up with, in addition to the scholarship that, that they um, put out, especially because teaching is such a big part of what we do. And for the growing number of people who are um, adjuncts and with these kind of increasing teaching loads, it's more and more of, a, you know, I teach in a quarter system, I teach seven courses a year. And so it's a huge part of what I personally do um, is teaching. And so why shouldn't that also get a central place in an academic journal. It seems sort of obvious to me. And your work should circulate beyond just your classroom, right? Right. And not for fame and fortune, but because theoretically, hopefully it's good and helpful. Yeah. I mean, the other half of it, which is also quite interesting, is the translation section. I don't know if there are any particular translations that you think we might want to talk about. But we should first mention how translation is presented on the website, because this was like the coolest thing that we got our designers to make for us is that you can toggle between different settings where you can read only the English, you can read only the Yiddish, you can read both at once, just side by side. And it's always beautiful the way it's done. Yeah, and it's it's very makes it very readable and also makes it a pedagogical tool, meaning you can look, because it's almost always line by line, you can see what choices the translator has made or what maybe you read in the Yiddish that you didn't understand. You can zoom over to the to the English side and back and forth as, you know, based on your own self-discipline of, of what you want to read. So I think that provides a really great uh, sort of just structure for it. But speaking of, I don't know if you want to mention particular pieces that you think do this well. Right. Well, I was just going to say in terms of, you were thinking about the pedagogy of the translation section, right? These are clear and printable Yiddish texts with standardized Yiddish. Like even if you are teaching in a Yiddish language classroom and you're not interested in the translation part of it, the Yiddish on the site is extremely usable for the classroom. Just to clarify, in Yiddish printing over the number of years, there hasn't necessarily been a standardized spelling of Yiddish in the early 20th century in particular. Um, And so it can be difficult to read multiple texts and texts are in better or worse shape. And that when we 
transcribe a text, we standardize the spelling and usually fix typos of various kinds. So, and we have an excellent collector group, an excellent group of, of, of Yiddish proofreaders that make this possible. So clean texts are a really important part of how to teach. And so we get to provide that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, just, just having more translations makes more texts available for teaching in the classroom and can uh, broaden the kind of canon of what people think is teachable, right? Because if something has never been translated before, then you can't bring it to a classic unless it's a Yiddish language class. What texts in, in particular do you, are you thinking of that we've published? So we recently published a, uh, a poem by Chaim Grade in translation by Julian Levinson. Uh, which is called Jewish Towns of Poland, um, previously untranslated poem. Chaim Grad is considered one of the most important, distinguished writers of Yiddish prose in his generation. And to have this poem, which we published uh, really very recently, it was our most recent translation, available, gives people an opportunity to think about post-war Yiddish uh, literature in, in new ways. So that's one prominent example. Saul, do you have favorites from the translation section that you wanted to highlight? We already mentioned Elie Rosenblatt's translation of the serfdom of the Uncle Tom's Cabin translation, which I think is really a fascinating way to think about 19th century Jewish conceptions of race, uh, which I think is really great. Uh, there's a great translation by our current translation editor, Daniel Kennedy, of a Shomalechem letter all about Bialik's shoes. So Chaim Nachbialik, the famous uh, national Hebrew poet, had left his shoes at Shalom Aleichem's house. And Shalom Aleichem writes this amazing parodic letter regarding who claimed Bialik's shoes. And it's, it's a really amazing letter. And it's mostly entertaining, which I think is great for the classroom, but also speaks to this connection between literatures. You get to think a lot about what it means to be a national writer and how Shalom Aleichem sees Bialik as a national writer as opposed to what he is as the national writer, as the someone who's worshiping Bialik's shoes, as a Yiddish writer, as opposed to Hebrew writer, you get these kinds of interesting dynamics between you know Jewish language politics and Jewish literary politics, while at the same time giving your students a very entertaining text to read uh, that is also pretty straightforward and, and has you know whatever vocabulary things you might need out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another thing that I've taught in my classroom is Sonia Gallant's translation of Fradel Stock's short story, A Tance or A Dance. She also published with us a uh, peer-reviewed article about that story. Um, and so that gives a number of additional resources to think about, think through the text and think about how to teach it. It gives students a chance to read a text and also read a scholarly article about it at the same time. You get a kind of nice pairing. And it's a really interesting text for thinking about gender and immigration in Eastern Europe and dance, which is Sonia's uh, expertise. I teach from these texts fairly often and bring them also both to people who are reading in Yiddish and to people who are reading in English. You know, obviously, I think that this is a a very important undertaking to have these kind of translations, right? But why do you think that these translations matter? You know, what is the contribution that they're making, you know, beyond having these individual texts that are available, you know, especially when we think about, you know, one of the major goals, which is to get people to actually read Yiddish, right? So, you know, one of these questions is, you know, you're doing these translations, uh, and you're also making available the sort of the standardized text as well, which is also very useful. You know, but when you think about the many competing goals, you know, why do you think that these texts matter in a scholarly way to have them available in translation and also in relation to this question of pedagogy and language instruction? One of the things that's interesting about the translation section, as with all of our sections, is the wide variety of the kinds of texts that we have published there. So um, we have 
humoresque short stories. We have letters. We have poems. We also have memoirs, a memoir about the Jewish unions in America, for instance. Uh, and so some of them are kind of more geared toward historians, perhaps, and some of them are more geared toward literary scholars. And some of them are about life in Eastern Europe. And some of them, are, I mean, they, they, they have the wide swath of um, geographical locations where Yiddish was represented and across time. And, and so in that way, it addresses the broad scope of Yiddish studies, just like the rest of our site does, uh, which I think is important. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think it just speaks to the larger translation politics of the journal, right? We're interested in thinking about how Yiddish comes out of its shell in that sense, right? So I would think we've talked a lot about this already, but yeah, these texts, we may think of them as inaccessible. We might think of them as texts that should or, or will probably remain in a footnote. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of challenge to the reader. What would happen if you wanted to read an entire Purim spiel from a Hasidic community in Borough Park from the 1990s, right? We have that text on our website. What does it mean, right, to take that text from its very specific context and make it accessible? So think, for instance, of one of the first translations we published of a drash by a Hasidic Rebbe by Ariel Evan Misa and Daniel Reiser. That text is part of a religious a religious education today, right? It's a text that would be read by a particular community for a particular purpose or in, say, a Jewish renewal context, maybe. But what happens when you put it on a website dedicated to Yiddish studies? What is that text doing now in translation? And who are those footnotes for? I think it's like extensively footnoted because Ariel does do a lot of footnotes and we, we thank him for them. And so, you know, what does that mean? I, I don't think we always know the answer to that. Take another problem, I think, from the early years where in that same introduction to the translation of Uncle Tom's Cabin, we had to standardize that Yiddish, but it's a Yiddish from the 19th century that doesn't lend itself to standardization. Anyways, we had to make lots of choices that were maybe not the best choices. Um, and sometimes the translation can, can shield things or you know, prevent a kind of access to the text that, that it would have otherwise, right? Uh, who knows how many Hasidim are reading our website, but I don't think they're coming to our website to um, necessarily learn a drash by a Hasidic Rebbe. So, I, you know, it's, it gets kind of complicated. And we've made this decision to be a translational hub, but, uh, you know, we don't always know what that means. Right, or what people are necessarily doing with these texts. So I think that we're mostly out of time. Um, but I want to kind of go back to something that I had asked you guys about at the beginning. We had talked about the origins of the journal, but you didn't really say that much about where you want it to go you know, where you see the future of Ingeveb and also the future of Yiddish studies, right? You know, where do you see this project going and also just the study of Yiddish culture in general? And how do you think that the journal can contribute to that? It's a hard question for a number of reasons because I see the journal as a very collaborative project that as things come up, as people's interests um, develop, we move along with them, right? So, oh, I have this really great idea to have a graduate student conference that Ingebeb would in some way sponsor. Let's do that. There's a kind of uh, fluidity to the journal that has to do with the collaborative nature of it. But as I vision it, I think that in some ways, the people who are involved in Ingebeb began largely as graduate students and are now in more established positions. It gives us a certain level of stability and credibility in the scholarly world, which maybe gives us a little more flexibility as well. We don't need to prove ourselves. People trust us. If we 
publish something that seems sort of um, unusual or unique, people will kind of maybe go along with that. Um, and so that gives us an opportunity to be maybe more creative. And also, I think one of our major goals is to support new work by young scholars and help develop the field through their eyes. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. I don't think it's fair for us to say what we think Yiddish studies needs to be or what Ingevev needs to be. First of all, that it needs to be a collaborative thing that involves all the people that are making Yiddish studies happen. And it should be one that is constantly reinvigorated by those conversations, either from, from the young people or from the old people, right? It doesn't have to only be young, but for us, that's, that's been one of the machines for it. And I think it's healthy to be able to say, we don't know what Yiddish studies is, nor do we want to be able to say what it is. Or for that matter, a larger conversation about Yiddish culture. Right. But it's important to be sort of actively seeking the answers to those questions continually, right? So I have an idea of having sort of like having a sense about what our, our readers want, what our various constituencies want, and asking over and over again, right? And having these kinds of meetings or email chains or whatever, where we hear from people about where they see the field going and what would be helpful to them. One of the questions that I... Uh, try to find answers to, although it can be very difficult, is what are people actually using, right? Do you use the teaching guides? Are they useful for you when you're writing your lesson plans? Or are they actually just kind of these pretty documents that sit on our website and what people are actually using are the worksheets. So we should be doing more of those, right? That's the, an example from the pedagogy section because that's the section that I spent the most time thinking about these questions for. But I think it, it rings true for all of the sections, right, of uh, what do people want? What are they using? What would they want more of? What would be helpful? And this is a question that we we have asked when we had a pedagogy poll about teaching and translation. One of the major questions is, what would you like to have translated? Because then we can try to make that happen. It's a really hard thing to do, like, like we were talking about before, about the idea of being a gatekeeper. Because that's so satisfying to be able to say, we know what this thing is. And it's much harder to constantly undermine your own authority and seed authority, right? Jessica's not going to be the editor-in-chief forever. I was editor-in-chief for two years, maybe not even, and Mindel took over soon after. And we want that turnover to happen quickly, which is, which is hard because turnover is hard. But also it, it's about trying to find space for new voices, trying to invite those new voices, identify them, make them feel comfortable to come in and take a project that they don't necessarily see as their own and, then, and make them say that it's their own. Right? And that seems to be how we're challenging our readers all the time, too, is like, make this your own. It's not just ours. Right. And I, and I know we're short on time, but I think that's also um, something that Ingevab has given me personally uh, in a huge way is um, an opportunity to make my own voice known and to develop my voice uh, and to develop editorial skills that I didn't have, managerial skills that I didn't have, online publishing skills that I didn't have. And uh, I think it has been enormously important for my own career as a person who was very interested in pedagogy and thought a lot about pedagogy to suddenly have a place where I could edit pedagogy journal when I wasn't teaching because I was you know, writing and I had little kids at home and I was working part time uh, to then have this opportunity to be sort of an authority in the field of pedagogy, I think really helped me get a job later on. And so I'm hoping to be able to give that forward as well to be developing not just new ideas and new directions for the journal, but also new professionals in the field of Yiddish studies through the venue of the journal. Right, right. I mean, I know you've said something about not being gatekeepers, you know, so on and so forth. But I think you've you know, pretty succinctly said kind of also a vision for the field, right, which is to have it be open 
to a growing cohort of scholars and you know teachers and professionals. Yeah, I mean that's the hope. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. This is really a lot of fun. So yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Jewish History Matters. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening.